Welcome to Cinescope Today, where our goal is to view and discuss current release films from a perspective that celebrates movies and their stories, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us, not necessarily free from criticism. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today, as always, is my co-host for Cinescope Today, Seth O'Neill, as well as my good friend and co-host of MuggleCast, Eric Skull. Hey, everybody. Hey, and we are talking about Ready Player One. Uh, Eric, you're our first guest on uh, Cinescope today. Congrats. Oh, uh, honored and thrilled, gentlemen. Uh, (laughs) This is uh, a blast, and uh, I always uh, enjoy uh, my time spent with you, Chad. Thank you. And this is you and Seth's first time meeting and talking, so exciting things happening all around. (laughs) Uh, How about you reintroduce yourself real quick before we get into the meat of our discussion uh, remind everybody out there who you are, what you do, where you come from, uh, all that sure. kind of stuff. Okay, I come from uh, Pennsylvania in the U.S. I have been living in Chicago for 10 years, and I, uh, as Chad mentioned, do a podcast called MuggleCast, which is the latest Harry Potter news, theories, and discussions. So if you have read or um, seen a Harry Potter book or film uh, and are interested in what uh, the the deep hardcore fans of that series are thinking and talking about today. Look no further than that podcast, which you can find on all the usual channels. Um, but I'm also a, a lifelong fan of movies. Who isn't? Um, and I've had the the great fortune of uh, st- guesting on a, a number of episodes of the Cinescope podcast, which I had before. We go way back, it seems, uh, and uh, I'm looking very forward to to cracking into Ready Player One, which I just saw over the weekend. Us too. I, I've now seen it twice, and so I'm really nice. champing at the bit to dive into it. But uh, real quick, Seth and I wanted to talk about uh, a couple movies that we've seen but for one reason or another didn't record episodes of Cinescope today on. So first up is Strangers Pray at Night. Real quick, Seth, what were your thoughts on that one? Um, I had originally seen the first one a while back. Obviously, there's a big gap between the first one and the second one to follow it up. Uh, so I really enjoyed the first one. It's actually one of my favorite scary movies uh, because it is very realistic, which makes it even more scarier. Uh, but this second one was also good. But and met a lot of expectations that the first one built up to. Uh, it's one thing that we talked about. It was hard to podcast about because it's just so real, and the scary movies genre is hard to kind of dive deep into. Mm-hmm. So it is enjoyable. It is real. It puts a family through a very traumatic experience, which is hard to talk about and kind of dive into because we obviously can't share in that experience at all. Right, but it was very enjoyable. It was scary. It met all the expectations that the first movie kind of built up to. Yeah, I mean, I was a big fan of the first one too. It was the first scary movie I ever saw. We did an episode of Cinescope on it way back in episode seventeen or eighteen or something like that in the first year, and I was really excited for the sequel. It had been a long time, ten years actually, and I thought that the sequel was. Overall, mostly pretty good. It felt like a completely different genre than the first film. The first film was a lot more reserved, whereas this one was like 80s slasher uh, flick. 
and th- there was a score, so it wasn't as minimal, and there were 80 songs playing throughout. So in, in some respects, it actually had some comedic moments. Um, but <laughs> remember our screening, there were people who laughed at moments that were not appropriate to laugh at. And because because those were moments when it was just really sad and depressing and heavy and gut-wrenching, and uh, it, it, was, it was tough. But overall, I thought it was a fairly worthy sequel, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, and uh, I think for those that enjoy scary movies, they should see it. For those that are not, I mean, it's not anything that you have to go see. It's not mm-hmm. like we're begging you to go see it, but it is enjoyable if you enjoy the scary movie genre. Thankfully, I thought it paid homage to the original film without copying it uh, word for word or scene for scene. So that was a nice benefit. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so there's our thoughts on The Strangers Pray at Night. Then real quick, I saw I Can Only Imagine uh, just this this weekend with my family. And I was always going to like this movie because I am a fan of Mercy Me and have been since I was in fifth grade. And so I have a really personal connection to the band and to the singer. I've seen them in concert multiple times. Um, Now, that being said, I do think the first third of the film was pretty weak. It was pretty over the top. That was the part that featured mostly the kid actors. Uh, But something to be said, Dennis Quaid as Bart Miller's father was Mm -hmm. fantastic throughout. And the guy who played adult Bart was stellar. Knowing Bart and being familiar with him as a singer and as a personality... I thought this guy completely nailed it. And the second uh, two thirds of the film for me worked extremely well, were stellar, were very emotionally impactful. And uh, I thought it, I thought it was worth seeing. So if you're into that, it's probably the best Christian film quote unquote I've, I've seen uh, because I don't feel like it hammered anybody over the head with anything um, like, like some Christian films tend to do. And so I, I, think it's worth going to see uh for that if you're a fan so that's that let's move into what we came here to talk about because i'm sure eric is eager to dive in just like we are sure thing okay so just real quick going over the stats for ready player one it was released just this past week march 29th of 2018 directed by steven spielberg i don't need to list his films but i'll list just a few Jaws, Close Encounters, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and the other Indiana Jones films. E.T., Schindler's List, Jurassic Park, Saving Private Ryan, Catch Me If You Can, Lincoln, War Horse, The BFG, and most recently, The Post. It was written by Zach Penn uh, on an original treatment, I think, by Ernest Cline, who wrote the book, Ready Player One. Uh, The music was by Alan Silvestri, so not Spielberg's typical Williams collaboration, and I actually think the film is the better for it. Uh, Alan Silvestri composed the scores to the original Back to the Future trilogy, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Forrest Gump, Contact, Serendipity, threw that one in there for you, Eric. Thank you. Uh, The Polar Express, (laughs) Uh, Night at the Museum, Captain America, the First Avenger, The Avengers, The Avengers Infinity War, and the upcoming Untitled Infinity War sequel. The movie stars Ty Sheridan, Olivia Cooke, Ben Mendelsohn, Mark Rylance, Simon Pegg, Philip Zhao, Wynne Morisaki, Hannah Jo Kamen, and T.J. Miller. So, starting off, the book. A couple of us have read it, a couple of, or one of us has not. So, uh, Seth, what was your experience reading the book, uh, and how did that frame your expectation for the movie? Yeah, so I had no idea about this book or movie until Chad just gave it to me as a Christmas present. Like, hey, here's a book, read it. (laughs) Uh, So, I got the book, I was like, I'm not a huge reader, 
I'll see if I enjoy it at first. And literally, after reading one chapter, I couldn't put it down. It was such an enjoyable read. Uh, it really gets you nostalgic just by reading what's happening in the book throughout. Uh, so I was super pumped for the movie because of the book. It, mm-hmm. You could visualize by reading the book what could it could what could the movie be. And I was super excited about the expectation, especially because Spielberg's directing it, which even makes me more hyped because you know that he can do such a good job adapting that visual that Ernest Klein makes in the book into the scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I first read the book a couple of years ago. I think it might have been on uh, the recommendation of Hybable's podcast, mm. uh, believe it or not. I don't remember for sure what made me pick it up, but I did, and I loved it. it it's worth noting that Eric, Seth, and I were not born in the 80s. And so uh, <laughs> we, we have... <laughs> Way to we, we single can't... me out. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah. It's, it's the truth. Jeez. Man, you're so old. <laughs> Tail end of the 80s, guys. 88. I don't remember the 80s. But go on. But the go, o- on. go The on. only reason I say that is because there's no reason we should be nostalgic for 80s culture. But oh, sure. here we are. And hanging in my stairwell of, of our apartment, we've got Raiders of the Lost Ark poster and multiple Back to the Future posters. And Well, you guys have good uh, taste then. That's all that means. Yes. Right. <laughs> and so uh, we're nostalgic for the book made us nostalgic for this time that we didn't even get to experience, maybe because it allows us to experience it That's with somebody who's obviously so passionate about it. Yeah. Uh, so I really enjoyed the the pop culture of the book and was excited to see that come to life as Seth said Spielberg is definitely the guy to do it, considering how much of a hand he had in forging 80s pop culture. Right. Um, So very excited for the film. I avoided as many trailers as I could uh, just because I didn't want to see how things were or were not going to be different from the book. Um, Now, Eric, you didn't read it, but how did sort of the hearsay of the book affect your expectation of the film? It's so interesting. My close friends whose opinions I trust on books read Ready Player One and didn't like it. Like absolutely did not love it. And so I had a choice uh, in seeing this film. I, I knew it was Spielberg doing the eighties and I was like, this, this is a, is a, is a can't miss, you know, kind of situation just on that premise alone. Um, but yeah, it was, it was bad. I just, you know, I just, I thought they thought it was fine. You know, I had, I had had some conversations uh, that were sort of non spoiler conversations about the book, but where people were like, it was a cool idea, but I have some problems with it. That's not the other thing. So, Going into the movie then, I was excited for the movie and also to like – I was sort of glad I didn't read it because um, I didn't want to have that same experience where I both didn't like a book and then end up not liking the film. I don't know. It's – I'm sort of torn. Coming from the Harry Potter um, you know, fandom, if a film is a bad adaptation or unfaithful literary adaptation – I never forgive it, such as Prisoner of Azkaban. Uh, I, I never absolutely forgive it. And from what I'm hearing, and we can definitely, I know we'll talk about this, but from what I'm hearing, there are some significant detractions from the book in the movie. And so, you know, going into the movie, I, I had heard even that, and I thought, well, maybe even if I'm the sort of person who would find a problem with the book or would agree with my friends on the book having its problems, maybe I'll love the film. So I went into it with a very, like, uh, deliberately blank slate is kind of what I'm trying to say here. It's like, well, I've heard some things. I don't know. We'll see if the movie stands on its own. 
So I was kind of kind of grateful for that kind of discourse, the fact that nobody was pressuring me by saying, this is my favorite book ever, you've got to see it, or this is my favorite movie ever, you've got to see it. Just kind of, you know, Blank Slate didn't know much about it. It's one of the only times I haven't read a, a book before going into its adaptation. I think um, famously Hunger Games, I read like that whole series the week before the first movie came out, needed to do it. I didn't want to be one of those uh, movie bandwagoners, you know? But I think mm-hmm. Ready Player One might make me into that. I don't know. I don't know. But, yeah. <laughs> well... The, the book is fr- definitely fresher on Seth's mind than it is on mine. I don't remember a whole lot of exact story specifics, um, but just sort of moving into my impressions of the film, uh, you know, I said I'd avoided most of the trailers. I'd avoided, I even sort of re- avoided rereading the book. I picked it up. I read the, reread the po- prologue this past week, mm. decided one, I didn't have time to reread the whole thing, but two, let's let the movie be its own thing. And I'm glad I did um, because after reading the book, I didn't have any problems with it. Like, I, I didn't know there were people who didn't like Ready Player One until the movie started coming out. But then I saw the film, and I sort of retroactively have just a few small qualms with the book that I think that the film fixed. And that the book, the book, to me, is like, did you get the reference, and how exact did you get it? Um, because without spoiling too much, there are scenes in the the book where you actually go into a film and the task was to to role play as a character and get every line and gesture correct whereas in the film you had more sort of psychological explorations into Halliday's character set within a pop culture world and i actually liked that because i thought it made it more accessible what did you think about that seth i thought that for a movie, it was the perfect choice because I was I actually watched a video about this kind of comparing the book and the movie. The book kind of goes into details that if the book or if the movie did, the movie would be like five hours long. Right. Because like for the levels, there's like levels within levels in the book. But for the movie, they only had to do one kind of task in order to advance. Mm-hmm. So I think that it was a good choice to that. And also the levels in the book. Like one of the, I think the first level was like watching him play joust. Yeah, it was, it was like joust, and there was something involving uh, a location from a Dungeons and Dragons handbook or something yeah. like that in the first task of the book. Yeah, so see, I, comparing I, I, that I was, to yeah, yeah, comparing that to like the first level of the movie, I'd rather watch a race car race than a guy playing old school retro joust. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Which the well, race itself had the pop culture references that we craved and that we wanted from the book. So it was sort of a win-win. See, that's so interesting. And, and, and I, I was planning to say this later as well. I really want already the behind-the-scenes kind of Spielberg's thoughts on um, all of it. And going into, for instance, like The Shining, like the one of the, the second task, is it, uh, in the movie, you know, basically takes place inside the movie The Shining. And that kind of stuff is super fascinating to me, watching Spielberg pay homage or, like, you know, kind of revisit his peers, you know, his cinematic peers, these other directors going into their works, going into their films in such an intimate way or in such a a big way. Like, I want hours and hours of just his thoughts on that and what it meant and what what he felt like doing it. But 
I was shocked to find that the tasks are all different in the books. I just found out I had an Easter party today and somebody else who had read the book was like, yeah, the tasks are, are all completely different. And I guess I understand, especially Seth, what you're saying about timing wise, how it would be difficult. That's often the number one excuse for not being a faithful adaptation is timing. But it does seem like they made a concentrated effort to make a movie that was appealing to a larger audience. And I I hate looking at it as like, who doesn't love a gaudy car chase? But honestly, that car chase looks really good. (laughs) (laughs) That chase is so cool. It was awesome. I saw it in IMAX 3D and uh, the film, the, the first and only time I've seen it so far, and... Despite the ticket price, I, I was pleasantly uh, surprised and I loved it. So I don't know. It just seems like this is going to be one of those films with the blessing of Ernest Klein, who you know wrote a draft or a treatment for the screenplay. It seems like they had some meetings and really came to some kind of agreement over what should be changed. It, this isn't necessarily like the author of the book signing his, his rights away or life away. It seems like maybe they came to an agreement about some of this stuff. And so I'd also like to see Ernest Klein's thoughts on why something was so drastically different because there will be, ultimately, there will be people who love this movie and don't like the book. And there's going to be people who love the book and don't like this movie. And there might be people who like both or don't like both. It's just the way, you know, the cookie crumbles. So right. I I feel like what I want is endless discussion from the people who made it as to like, what they're shooting for because I, I think you got a lot of really talented people. You got Ernest Klein wrote this book that, that people really love and Spielberg is a god among men for <laughs> for movie directors. But, you know, does does it work? Does it not work in the end either as a film of on its own or an adaptation with all these changes? There had to be reasons behind each, each, each and every one of these changes. So I just hope in the end that it, it, it achieves whatever the filmmakers are going for in the end. Right. And I already spoke to my my sort of pros of the film and how it did improve over the book. If I had any issues, it was mostly in rushed character relationship building, especially in between Artemis and Parsifal at the beginning of the film. Uh, Once they sort of shoehorned that in and it was, okay, they're a thing now. I enjoyed that relationship a lot more. But the, the early development, getting them together and getting them interacting with each other was probably my biggest issue with the film. Other than that, I don't have a whole lot of complaints just because it was so much fun. <laughs> I, I think I wanted to a little bit more backstory behind Finale Zandor, um, uh-huh. I guess, is that uh, Sorrento's right-hand woman. Um, I kind of wanted more of, of her character. I actually expected her to be uh, – the way the camera was lingering on her, I expected her to be Artemis. I expected her to be revealed to be Artemis at first. Um hmm just kind of going into it randomly. Um, but I mean, I, 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 it was well acted. The interesting thing too, for me is I haven't seen any of Spielberg's animated works. Like I haven't seen BFG, uh, for instance. Um, and it was so interesting to me because I usually watch Spielberg do, you know, straight live action, watching the camera linger on actors. This is a very familiar Spielberg, you know, I know how that looks like. And to see so much of this film in the animated world, in the, in the Oasis, I was kind of caught off guard because I'm like, wait a minute, this doesn't feel or look the same. So it was so interesting to see him build character in both using both mediums, I guess. Mm-hmm. And the film, the film dancing between those two realities just seemed to be unique. 
for uh, a film. So I liked that. I liked that this film really, in some key ways, isn't like any other movie that's out there. Um, even though at this, it's simultaneously being exactly like or including elements or incorporating elements from every other movie out there, uh, right. at least the the '80s ones. So it's such a an interesting balancing act and an interesting beast uh, that they've created. Seth, any cons you wanted to speak to before we dive into spoilers? Yeah, I mean, the only con I I had with the storyline was when they kind of threw in the resistance, the the idea of a resistance. Yeah. It was very kind of like random because if you kind of follow – because obviously I had the book knowledge to that and in the book there is no resistance at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what do you mean resistance? Whenever they What's kind of threw on? the resistance in there, I was like, what? <laughs> we'll dive into that a little bit more when we get to spoiler stuff. Yeah. Um, Are we talking about IOI though or, or what? No, it, it's it's Artemis and her her people. Oh, interesting. OK. All right. Yeah. Uh, so Interesting. Just – Basically, uh, moving on, what I'm hearing is that we all recommend people see this in theaters on the biggest screen you can, right? Yeah, biggest, well, loudest screen you can, absolutely. I would say even 3D. Spend the extra yeah. couple bucks because it looks it looks great, um, particularly in the, you know all the moments in the Oasis where they're fl- floating or flying or dancing or any of that stuff. And, and you know the climactic battles in the races, they just look mm-hmm. good in 3D. Yeah, Seth and I did IMAX 3D, and then when I saw it again uh, by myself last night, I saw it in AMC's Dolby Digital, uh, which is non-3D, but it's just as big and crystal clear a screen. So I'd, I'd recommend either way, but I thought that the 3D did actually add a little bit this time. So Yeah, typically when you go see movies, 3D is kind of like, eh, I mean, whatever. Yeah. But obviously this was a great environment for it, especially because virtual reality, all that stuff. Okay, so moving on to spoiler territory, um, story stuff. Eric, what do you got that you liked about the story here? Liked about the story. Okay, um, in general, I loved the performance uh, of Holiday. Um, is it Mark Raylance? Yeah, Mark uh, Rylance, uh, Spielberg's like new. Uh, boy toy is not the right word, but he started was... the last three films, <laughs> the last three films. Yeah. I noticed that I looked this up just the other day. I'm like, who is this guy? Where would I have seen him? And, and it, it I'm glad that it's a, a collaborator of like a, somebody that Spielberg knew he could trust because mm-hmm. ultimately when you have something like that, you clearly, it, it signals that the director has a clear vision for the character. Right. And you, you, you cast the guy that you know can get the job done. Um, so I didn't see it so much as like nepotism kind of thing as I did. This is what, so like, I think that Mark's performance, which I happen to really love and enjoy, um, was clearly something that a lot of thought or detail was put into by the director. Um, so like, I, I, I feel like that's Halliday's character and, and it's probably different in the books even though – or in the book, even though it's – um he's still the, the main guy with the, the quest. But his journey in the film as a character is you're going into the romantic relationship, which I also understand was not a big deal at all in the book. Um, You know, going through this man's life, going through this man's history, his regrets is a very personal sort of quest. And I just love sort of the mysticism not only the fact that he's also, you know, this wizard in the Oasis, um, was it Anorak, but even at the end, the end scene where sort of uh, we pull back the curtain and, and Wade uh, meets Willy Wonka at the end of the chocolate, you know, tour. Mm-hmm. And and it, you also have a little Halliday playing, you know, Atari or whatever. That whole 
mystical element of who is this guy coupled with the the real memories that were in like the museum scenes throughout the movie portrayed a really interesting uh character that I absolutely wanted to know more of I thought was sort of an intentional um commentary on sort of uh social recluses who are you know have tech startups that are worth billions of dollars but they can't communicate with another person you know so like I I, I thought this was all pretty relevant or pretty familiar storytelling but done in a way that was interesting and and I think I think the movie was kind to to Halliday in a way that um appealed to me yeah I think and Seth, you can correct me if I'm wrong. That that ending scene from the film with Halliday uh, is pretty much straight from the book. I mean, the the sort of general takeaway, the interaction between Parzival and Halliday is the the ultimate takeaway from the book too. Um, it's mm-hmm. all the stuff leading up to that where they're diving a little bit more into his psyche that I think was added to the film, and that's what adds to Halliday being a better character in the film than he is in the book. Because like I said, the the tasks in the book were all about pop culture references. This was some obscure thing that was hinted at in the journals that Halliday was the only one who knew about it, like some obscure thing from 1982 in some dilapidated Dungeons and Dragons manual. Like it, it was that nitty gritty and specific in the book. Whereas here it was like, let's look at Halliday as a person Let's look at the things that 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 made differences in his life, the things that fueled the choices and decisions he made, and let's take a lesson out of that and make it into a task. And that's what I appreciated about the film is that it was all about his psyche rather than I get the reference, although the references were still a part of it. Right. Yeah, and I agree. I think that the movie makes obviously the main character is Wade, but ultimately the movie is shaping around Halliday. Mm-hmm. It's telling us who is this creator that made this virtual reality that is now shaping that whole culture. Mm-hmm. And so we get to actually learn more and more about Halliday really throughout the film rather than any other character. We're learning more about his biggest regrets. Obviously, his biggest success is the Oasis, but actually, what happened. Throughout from creating the Oasis, before the Oasis, post Oasis. So who is Halliday and what and why did you do this? What was the result of it? Mm-hmm. And, and do you guys think that the end sort of summation, the epilogue uh, of of happy ending of of you know obviously what happened? Big big spoiler, but um, even even something like turning the Oasis off for Tuesdays and Thursdays so that people could spend more time in the real world with each other. Did that track for you? Did that land for you that, you know, the the message, at least the film was building up toward the whole time, is that it's about our relationships with one another that make us who we are and define us and are, are more important than, you know, the amount of gold or, or any of that? Did, 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 how did you guys feel about that sort of uh, message? Here's uh, – I've heard the criticism that it, it doesn't sort of pay off, and I, I see – understand that but for me i think the film wasn't trying to choose one side or the other the oasis versus reality i thought i don't think it was telling us spend more time in the real world because the real world is real and and yeah that was something more or less specifically said but to me it was about life sucks sometimes and sometimes you do need an escape and that's what the oasis is there for 
but reality is real. And so we do have to spend time outside to make the world a better place. And so shutting down the Oasis a couple of days a week does give us opportunity to spend more time in the world, recognize its problems and to improve on those problems. But I think what people are missing is that the movie is also showing us the relationships that can be formed in those online virtual environments. H is Parzival's best friend. Uh, Parzival finds Artemis or Wade finds Samantha, however you want to say it. These are real relationships that are formed within this virtual environment. And those are no less than the ones that are formed person to person. And so I, I think the film is towing the line and saying, yes, balance needs to happen, but one isn't necessarily better than the other. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. I think the keyword you used there that I was actually going to use is balance. Like there, it needs to be a balance. One cannot fear the other because you need both in this situation. You need both, both to ha- be, uh, what's the word I want to look for, uh, to operate in this new world because that virtual reality had already made such a big impact at that time. It was the culture, but it's also important to realize that that virtual reality is itself a virtual reality. There is a reality that you have to know that you have to be a part of right now as well. It we uh, were really like living in the um, the the world uh, from Wally, right? Like <laughs> yeah. the, like Earth or 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 human society from Wally. Everybody's plugged in. Nobody's really paying much attention. And like the the longer you stare at the the real world scenes in this movie, the more horrified you are. I mean, you've got this huge mega corporation that's that's basically the number one opposition right and the bad guys and and they're pretty scary they torture their employees or and seem to have like a, a form of um uh what, indentured servitude uh, indentured thank you that's exactly what i was looking for um you know on regular citizens and they are absolutely abusing the power and privilege um that they have and it's this huge corporate capitalist bs that's huge that's that's a problem also, like the world's in disrepair and everything's dirty and messy, and you know Wade's own personal life is horrifying. Um, so you know th- there's issues of domestic abuse and uh, poverty, and everybody's being kept real poor, and and it's just not a situation that uh, is is desirable at all. And the Oasis is presented very much as an, an escape from that, um, which I get. But it's it's almost to the point where it's it's way overkill. Um, you know, the only thing that they they're not spending money on, you know, cl- a cleaner home. They're spending money on a better VR suit that's going to make them feel when they get kicked in the balls. You know, so <laughs> it, it just absolutely is is you know everybody's priorities off. I, I think it part of this film is almost cautionary uh, because it it worries me that I spend too much time playing video games. Well, I. I- yeah, I agree. But then I look at the the final battle uh, on Planet Doom, and you see the four Ninja Turtles, and we cut to the real world, and we see these kids who are living out their fantasies of being Ninja Turtles together. And then you see the Halo clan, and then I think to my time spent playing Destiny, I've got a clan of people who I've never met in real life, but I consider some of them to be very good friends. And I, I could only imagine going into a fight like that with my fire team from destiny and 
uh, kicking some IOI butt. I mean, I, 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 and those are real relationships. I don't doubt those friendships any more than I doubt this friendship I have with Seth who's sitting in the room with me. Um, and so I, I, I just, I see both sides of it. And I think that the film is trying to toe the line there saying that yes, both can be good, but yes, you need to have both. Well, in a way, that's also like what you mentioned about the friends and the clan banding together and being themselves while supporting each other. That's what Spielberg films have always been about. Right. Like almost to the to the letter, like every even I'm thinking of uh, the Goonies, which um, was not directed by Spielberg, but he wrote the the story for it. Like these these films uh, that showcase individuals using their own unique talents to be uh, more than a sum of their parts when they're when they're brought together is absolutely 100% Spielberg's like fingerprint. Um, seeing it in this film as well as the appeal when Parzival has his speech at the end and is really appealing to the world. They don't know him. I mean I guess they kind of – it helps that he has some notoriety. Mm-hmm. But he's able to appeal to their humanity to get them to all show up and and risk you know very real being cashed out uh, threat to, to bring down the enemy. And I think it's it's very humanist and it's very um, heartwarming in that way. And, and so I absolutely I, – I, I do eat up a good story that's like the common decency and people finding it or, or re, re-finding it after a period of, I don't know, away time or distraction. Going back to story details, like uh, or specifically the visuals of the film, uh, we talked a little bit about them, but the animation in this movie is so fantastic, and it looks great on the it's big great. screen. Uh, our first glimpse into the Oasis as we fly through Minecraft world, I, I, I laughed out loud, and then we see Vacation World and the Casino Planet, and then later we're going through the, the Artifacts store or whatever you want to call it trading zone where you see artifacts from borderlands which is a loot based shooter game you see characters from halo or you see the teenage mutant ninja turtles i felt so fully absorbed into the film and just appreciated all the pop culture that it was bringing to me because yes it was about stuff i recognized and that i had a more intimate relationship with but also it was like hey i know that name i don't know much about it it's cool to see it in the film alongside the things that i'm comfortable with Seth, do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I think the animation itself is very... It, I think it, that adds a personal touch to the people that are watching it because obviously it has nostalgic 80s references, but also has 2000s references, 2010s mm-hmm. references. So no matter what mm-hmm. age you are, you can connect with something that is on the screen. And mm-hmm. I think that is very strong because when you connect with something on the screen, it makes you more connected to the film itself because you want to know more about well, I can see that. I know this character. I know this character. How, why is he in there? And that was another advantage of the film is that it brought the references to today, whereas the book was very much rooted in the 80s. And I think it, it was smart of Spielberg to make it a celebration of all pop culture with the focus on 80s uh, rather than the book just being exclusively 80s. And if you don't know it, you're sort of just left behind. Yeah. yeah, I expected I expected going into it again, not having read the book, but hearing things that, about how eighties it was. I expected a thousand more Pac Man time, you know. Like I expected a bunch more Pac Man, a bunch more Rock'em Sock'em Robots, <laughs> you know. None of that stuff. Kind of, I almost expected kind of Wreck It Ralph, but mm-hmm. I also have not seen Wreck It Ralph, um, which that's on me. Yeah, take, take <laughs> Chad just made the that. most ugliest but, face right now. <laughs> You have oh, no man. idea. But, but I mean, <laughs> well, does this film compare at all to Wreck-It Ralph? Like, like, what would you say 
how would you say these films are similar and different? Just going on a tangent there for a well, Wreck It Ralph is isn't about the pop culture references. The pop culture references are just sort of in the background for you to enjoy. Uh, they're not as integrated into the story as they are here. Uh, but in Wreck It Ralph, really, yeah, as in Wreck It Ralph, you do have like uh, Tappers, you have Cubert, you have a Sonic the Hedgehog appearance. Uh, I don't remember oh, Dig Dug, but uh, there are those references to uh popular arcade culture and appearances by significant characters from then and today but it, it's not as central to the story itself this the story of wreck it ralph is very much just about ralph trying to find his place as the bad guy of his video game um mm. whereas here in ready player one it's about diving into what halliday enjoyed and using that to find out more about himself they 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 were more primary here than they were secondary in Wreck It Ralph. Okay, that's fair. I I will say I um I lost my mind uh twice watching this movie uh Ready Player 1. And the first was during the first task in the race. Uh they're going through town and there's a movie theater and on the marquee it says Jack Slater. Uh-huh. Uh, or Jack Slater 4. That is a reference to Last Action Hero, the 1993 film. Uh, directed by John McTiernan with Arnold Schwarzenegger and F. Murray Abraham, where a kid gets sucked into a movie uh-huh. and has to help that action star um, named Jack Slater survive. So it was absolutely like the tiniest little, the car is just rounding the corner and on the marquee it says either Jack Slater 4, which is what the movie was inside the other movie, or just Jack Slater. I was, I lost it. I just couldn't, <laughs> you, you know, you can't prepare yourself for like how you're going to feel when something like that, something so mundane like reaches out of like a corner of a frame and speaks to you. Like I couldn't believe it. Like it just, it just, I was paralyzed with glee for some reason. Um, it's a great movie. Everybody should see last action hero. Uh, but, uh, then the, the other time was, um, just seeing the, the listening to the score and, and seeing the DeLorean on, on screen. Right. <laughs> um, every, every minute of the entire film, I just, every time it was on screen, I was just a little bit dead. So, I will say, like, um, succumbing to the nostal- like the flashiness of the nostalgia is I- – I feel like it's not why I loved the film, but I feel like there's a lot to love in that, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, I uh, for me, as far as blow-my-mind moments go, um, during that first race, the uh, T-Rex all of a sudden popping up and delivering that classic roar after swallowing a car or two. Uh, I think that's like the one specific reference to a Spielberg directed film in this one, because I think he tried to take out most of his own references so as not to be accused of uh, uh, praising himself. Yeah, self celebrating. Um, But the Back to the Future he produced, so he did bring that in. But then the other one was the Shining scene. I had heard no inkling of that before I saw this, and I lost my mind. I was so excited. I was making, I, I was theorizing while we were watching out loud, almost uh, maybe even a couple of times room two, three, seven, two, three, seven. And I, I love the shining. Like it is my favorite scary movie. And to, to the moment I realized that they were about to go inside of it was one of the coolest movie going experiences I've ever had. And then walking going through with h who has never experienced the shining and 
following the the twin girls and then the blood coming through the hallway <laughs> and then falling into 237 and then falling into the maze and we see the silhouette of Jack as he's chasing after him with the axe. It is so cool. that That is mind-blowing to me that they were able to recreate that film within this film. And it, it was just... I can't imagine that movie going that that specific experience, that specific moment being topped even this year, really. And I mean, it's Spielberg doing Kubrick, right? It's absolutely. I mean, never mind the scenes that are lifted directly from the film, and then the characters are superimposed, like going into the hotel. I guess when they first go in, but kind of for the, the for those very few scenes. It's Spielberg mimicking another director's style in mm-hmm, a way, mm-hmm. you know, in a way that's, ex- again, extremely intimate or maybe homage is the right or wrong word. But, like, you got to think about that stuff when you're doing that. And, and you know, I'd, I'd love to just read an article on how those scenes are, are you know, a tribute or, or similar or not similar. Or maybe just, maybe just Spielberg's just being Spielberg. But the attention to detail, they really nailed it. And I think that 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 is not just it's not derivative at all. It's it's craftsmanship of like the highest art to be able to recreate and recontextualize some of that stuff. Yeah, and I think it's very awesome. Uh, I re- and like you said, kind of prior to when we before we get spoilers, that it'd be really cool to have a good interview of them answering a lot of questions of differences between the book and the movie. Because in the book, there was really no reference to the Shining at all. The Shining is a brand new thing that they threw into the movie. Because in the book, the movie that they had to uh, dive into and act and say all the lines was War Games. So mm-hmm. with Matthew Broderick, yeah, with Matthew Broderick, yeah. So they had to dive. I don't in, even remember that movie. Yeah, they had to dive <laughs> into the character Matthew Broderick and do every single line in action Matthew Broderick does in that movie. So Shining was just a new idea. So I'm curious as to like why they chose the Shining. Obviously, it's a huge movie that the '80s rolled around. It was a huge scary movie. So it was one that I'm sure that wasn't hard to choose from, uh, but it was just very interesting that it chose it. And one other reference that I really enjoyed was they had the holy hand grenade. Oh, the, yeah, the holy hand grenade. I, <laughs> I saw that and I was just like, yes. <laughs> it was like, it was a count to count to three. Yeah, the count to three. Count to three and throw. The I mean, all the Back to the Future references. You know, Eric and I. That that's sort of our thing is Back to the Future. And yeah. I mean, you have the DeLorean, you have the Goldie Wilson poster, you have the Zemeckis cube, you have all the references within the score. Uh, there was one moment during the race where I turned to Seth and I say, that's the percussion from Back to the Future with different melodic material on top. Yes, yes. <laughs> instead of going down, it goes up. Yeah. And instead of going up, it goes down. Otherwise, it's exactly Back to the Future. And And you know what? Like, I tweeted after I saw the movie, I wonder how much money... Uh, Alan Silvestri got paid to rip himself off. <laughs> this is absolute. It is. I guarantee you, they're so recognizable yet opposite, like transposed up instead of down themes that are so much Back to the Future. This is like the essential fourth Back to the Future film as far as the score is concerned, and like the the score does tons of other stuff, but for long extended sequences of action, I think all the big sequences. It's Back to the Future. It absolutely is like something from one of the Back to the Future movies is playing intentionally. Right. It's crazy. Um, one last thing story-wise before we dive into characters, I think. Uh, I, I like how in the, the more pivotal scenes, Spielberg cut back and forth between reality and Oasis. Um, mm. 
to to show the contrast of the two the the wonder and imagination of the oasis versus the dystopian tough reality of the world and seeing people as they imagine themselves versus how they appear in real life i i think that was a really fascinating contrast and he does it more as the film goes on as the characters learn balance like that that's sort of the takeaway of the film and when wade is giving his speech in the back of the van to everybody on planet doom we see more of wade giving that speech than we do parzival even though parzival is the one being broadcast there's lots of close-ups of wade walking around the trailer with his gear on because it's more he's learned at that point in the film that it's not winning the prize isn't about getting cool stuff for himself and buying a mansion as he alludes to earlier in the film it's about uh, saving the world, stopping IOI, uh, making the Oasis accessible and uh, available to everybody, and still promoting that the that the Oasis has real world consequences. And so I, I thought that was a really smart move by Spielberg to cut back and forth, especially in those more pivotal moments. Yeah, without that, you would kind of forget that there are real people controlling these characters right. at all. Yeah, I think that's super. If you spend, then there's a lot of this movie spent in the Oasis. Yeah, um, it's probably close to like sixty thirty mm-hmm. or something, you know. <laughs> but which which is which is not a lot of real world stuff. Uh, but in those crucial scenes, I think it is very well balanced, and you do understand ultimately that there are real people controlling this. So I. I I was impressed by that uh, balance, I think, as well. Yeah, and also shows the personal attachment that the, the real world people have to their avatars, to their characters mm-hmm. in the virtual reality. I think that's really powerful oh. that the, most of the speech was Wade because you can see the emotion that he has towards what he feels towards the Oasis, mm-hmm. what he actually feels towards IOI. Mm-hmm. So you're actually seeing the real person showing his real emotions portrayed through Parsifal. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, story-wise, I don't know that they needed to blow up his aunt uh, and have him, like, need to try and get a hold of her, like, and the, you know, domestic situation be an issue right before they bombed. Like, to just to, like, okay, IOI is very evil, they just killed his aunt. You know, they were presumably responsible for the death of his parents, maybe, originally, or at least Samantha's, um, you know, parents as well, like... It was kind of there's this movie does sort of suffer from being streamlined, I think, a little bit in certain areas like that. It stood out as like on the nose or when uh, Artemis and, and, and Wade are, are or when Smith and Wade are, are, are courting. That was like pretty rushed, mm-hmm. I thought. Um, there's some interesting ideas, for instance. And, you know, as we get into the, the characters, we can talk more about it. But like Samantha says to Wade or Artemis says to Parzival. You only see what I want you to mm-hmm. see. You don't know me. You only know what I want you to know, and you only see what I want you to see. That's huge. That right there is the line for anonymity on the internet dating back to the 90s, the early right. 90s. Um, right? Like you you aren't – you know, you can, you can be truly anonymous and you can hide more about yourself when you're not in front of another person. And that almost should have been like more of a, a thesis statement, but in the end it – was just boiled down to sort of a a character being anxious to meet this boy. Um so y- you know I I don't ultimately know that the romantic subplot for instance was necessary in the story even if it's what happens in the book I was far more interested in other aspects than the romance between um 
Parzival and 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 Artemis. And and at the end, can I just say the scene where like Og or whoever, or the, it's either the police or Og are like come up to the door to like give him you know everything, and like Wade and Samantha are like I don't know, she's helping him out of his suit or something, and then like they have to close the door. They open the door and there she's helping him out of his suit. There's oh I'll let you go. Then he closes the door and then they open it back up and they're in a different position. I didn't think that was necessary at all. Um, but I don't know. It's just, you know, that's the kind of stuff where it gets into popcorny, you know, goofy kind of romantic. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know that that really was, was brought to its full use or potential. They definitely did play up the romance from the book, uh, in the book, from what I remember, it was very sort of one way from Wade to Artemis, uh, for, for most oh, of it. In fact, I don't think they met until after the, after Parzival had won. Like in face to face, no. Well, it, no. it was towards the end. It it was before the the final challenge because because okay. Og in the in the book Og gets all the high five and brings him to his mansion and they play mm-hmm. and the final challenge is mansion. Yeah, so th- that's that's played off just a little bit differently, but uh, rather than them meeting face to face halfway through the film, it's more in like the last third, last quarter of the book. And the one thing that the one thing I kind of talked about in the beginning of the uh, podcast that I didn't like was kind of their fir- the way they first met was through the resistance is what the movie brought into it, and that was an idea that is new to the movie, but it was weird because I didn't don't know how they never explained how they found Wade in the movie, mm-hmm. like all of a sudden they had that dude kind of tra- trace him. Mm-hmm. How did they know he was in mm-hmm. the trailer park? How did they pick him up? That was the only thing, question I had that was like, they didn't really fill that hole in the story mm-hmm. for me. For me, it's like if IOI can find him based on like tracking a shipment of like that power suit or whatever to him, I felt like anybody could. Like that information is like re- purchase history. I just get that it's hackable mm-hmm. on the internet. I don't need that necessarily spelled out for me. But the big thing about the resistance I have is – were they even useful in the film other than tracking Wade down? What do they even do? Like these are people who have a vested interest in toppling IOI. Do we see them again? Because the resistance is the planet. The resistance is everybody else who digitally shows up to kick butt on planet doom, mm-hmm. right? There, there's no longer a need for an army that's in like conveniently in Columbus, Ohio, because these five friends are running around in a van and they're the resistance. Like they, there almost doesn't need to be this added complication of you know Samantha's people, and and are they all just killed when IOI shows up, or what exactly you know is the situation? So I I would agree that it's if it's an addition that isn't in the books, I don't think it's clear at all what purpose it serves, and I don't know why it exists. Yeah, it's not super useful. I mean, at, when we first meet Artemis in the film, she's referred to as a sixer fixer. Uh, so we just have a sense that she is on some sort of vendetta against the Sixers and IOI and just having her be a part of some, quote, resistance in the real world, however brief they were involved in the story of the film, uh, was just their way of reiterating that. But yeah, uh, it, we probably could have done without that specific detail. Um, now, just speaking more towards Wade and Parzival, I, I like that we see the difference between him as Wade and him as Parzival. Uh, when he's in the Oasis, he's he's self-confident. He struts along. He's able to talk to anyone without stuttering. But then when we first meet him as Wade and he returns to the stacks with his aunt and her boyfriend, he cowers, he stammers, he's unsure of himself. It, it's, it's a growth 
throughout the film as he brings the parts of himself that he developed in the Oasis, the parts of him that were Parzival and helped him to be more sure of himself when he brings that into the real world in those instances where um, he talks with and later kissing Samantha or uh, in the, the chase sequence in the real world at the end when Finale shows up and he jump kicks her in the, in real life. Uh, yes. With the help of the rig, but he, he is, he has that self-confidence to do something that previously you'd pretty much only do in the Oasis and bring it to the real world because it, the, the the two are melding. There's not so much a difference between Wade and Parzival. And in fact, when him and Samantha meet for the first time, he says, well, you can call me what you want. They're all the same to me. And at that point, they really are. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting um, to point out his character growth. I, I, I like that a lot. Um, And we also see his growth from branching out from within himself. At the start, he says, you know, the the quest, if I get the egg, I'm going to buy a mansion. I'm going to buy all this cool stuff. I'm going to buy a new suit. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he's he's so unwilling to team up with anyone, even with H. He's not in a clan together. They're they're just friends. And so he's right, tackling the, right. the complications of chasing the egg solo and sharing tidbits here and there. But by the end, he's friends with uh, he's with his friends, both in the Oasis and uh, in the real world as the high five kind of convenient. They were all living in Columbus. Ohio <laughs> yeah, yeah that that's time. true. Oh, very, very sort of convenient. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, maybe it's just a small world sort of situation, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what are the odds? Yeah. I don't but know. they, they bring that, that relationship from the game into real life and forge real friendships and become a clan together. And he realizes that the events within the Oasis have those real world consequences that, uh, need to be dealt with when he does win. And that, that sort of uh, forms his opinions and the, the decisions he makes as head of the Oasis and bringing on Og as a consultant for decisions made in the Oasis. And so I, I like seeing that he, he made it from about himself to about everybody else. Yeah. I think the contest mm -hmm. itself opened Wade's eye, Parzival's eyes mm -hmm. uh, because whenever you first get the contest obviously it's like the lottery like right. obviously th that's how it kind of relates to today like obviously when you want to go buy the lottery you think I want a lot of money you uh, when the, for the contest you want I want all the money I want to own this corporation that'd be pretty cool I'd mm -hmm. use a lot of money for myself yeah. uh, but as he learned more about why the Oasis was made and also, what are the problems that the Oasis has right now? Obviously, he sees IOI being the problem. Uh, so his eyes are more open, deeper and deeper. He gets into this contest. And obviously, Artemis has uh, a hand in that because she kind of opens his eyes, helps him understand the evil in the Oasis and in the real world. But he kind of has a purpose that is just formed, molded and changed throughout the movie. And at the end, you, he finally, whenever he gives the big speech, I feel like that's like the climax. He finally understands what he needs to do with the Oasis. Mm -hmm. A real quick side note, the line that made me laugh hardest, possibly both times I saw the film was during Halliday's death monologue at the start when he says, uh, my fortune is estimated at half a million, uh, half a trillion dollars. Really? <laughs> and he corrects yeah. himself from, uh, I don't know that. Maybe it's a silly thing to laugh at, but that got a huge laugh for me both times. Uh, I did, I did lose it 
I did lose it with the Star Trek. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that too. Thing, <laughs> all the Star Trek in that deck. I was like, yes. Just now, what are our thoughts on Samantha and Artemis? Uh, we already talked a little bit about her weaknesses, but what do we like about her? Yeah, as a character, she's really driven, um, and I like and I like that about her. Um, she's extremely confident. She's extremely competent. Uh, apparently, there, there was something in there about he's watched all her web videos or like you or like um, was it playthrough vids or whatever that she's posting. So like, I kind of want to see more of that. You know, it seems it seems like she has sort of a side hustle where she helps people play different games around mm-hmm. the Oasis. So, you know, would have, would have benefited from, you know, some more screen time to see what her life was like before she was a resistance fighter. Um, even though she's been one all her life, how she's kind of, what she's done to more camouflage herself, because from the get go, and, and this is a, a you know, a, a failing of, of it being a movie is you're introduced to like the five or six main characters almost mm-hmm. immediately, you know, um, H and H's couple friends and then Artemis and Parzival. I would have liked to have seen more time devoted to how she is good at hiding and, and camouflaging. We, we of course see her do that um, in this film. She's able to get the magic shield down in a really clever and creative way. And I think that's definitely her strong point is her resourcefulness. Um, she is able to, she does need to and is fine with relying on her friends when she's in trouble which is great like she's just not i don't think there's anything to dislike necessarily she is um you know a good friend a solid warrior solid fighter and you know very intelligent and 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 you know what she lets parzival in 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 a like i think is a, a really natural or special way like she kind of has an intuition about him or something and then that sparks like her her judge of his character is what ultimately leads to the resolution um of of the the movie is because she takes sort of a chance on this guy yeah i think that uh the change kind of that we see in artemis i think that actually she starts off being a loner with her mission because obviously she mm-hmm. is personally impacted by ioi because of her parents and you kind of see that whenever she's going through the first uh, first race where her motorcycle's destroyed. He just says, hey, I'll fix your bike. When it's fixed, she kind of gets out of there. And I think she didn't really understand Wade because he was naive because his first thing was like, what would you do with that prize? Oh, I'd buy all the money. She kind of brushed him off like, oh, he's, he's just another one of those normal people that just wants some money. So I think uh, she obviously, cha- her perspective changes because she then kind of opens up to Wade as she knows him more, opens up to H, Opens up to Shaito and Daito. Is it da- Shadow and Daito? Uh, it's Daito, and they just call him Sho. Sho, that's film. right. I that was one of them. Uh, but she opens up to that because she sees that there, she is not the only one that has an issue with IOI. There are plenty that are having issues with it, and that mm. they themselves, like, kind of, like I said, uh, it's, they're all, they are the resistance. Right. I, I don't have a whole lot to add. Uh, I appreciated her go-getter personality and her willingness to put herself at risk. Um, and she does that from the start. She, right after that, the the first race, uh, when Wade does save her from dying, she sort of chastises Wade for that. She says, well, our only concern shouldn't be losing our stuff. It's about the world losing its stuff. And she said, you know, it, if I don't take that chance of trying to get past King Kong or whatever the situation may be, then 
IOI wins and everybody else loses. And so it, for her, it's always about sacrificing herself for the betterment of everybody else. And uh, yeah, we see her do that multiple times, whether it's in the race or whether it's taking that initial leap in the gold room of the Overlook or sneaking around IOI headquarters to infiltrate the shield and to fight against the Sixers from within. Uh, she does a lot of cool stuff that put herself at risk, but it's all because she has a bigger picture in mind. You know, I, I'm surprised we made it this far in the podcast without talking about Sorrento. Yes, he was definitely up to. next on my list. Let's let's let you lead it off. <laughs> I mean, he's the villain, right? He's this guy. He uh, at first appears to be nothing more than a, a corrupt, power hungry bureaucrat or 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 someone who doesn't have a lot of power. I mean, he he rose essentially from being a a coffee clerk, um, you know, wannabe who didn't have the talents of somebody like Halliday, he looked up to and idolized, to now somebody who's going to subvert that person's wishes and 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 do like whatever it takes to control or grasp for power that he was never smart enough to to, to have. It's a very common and, and understandable sort of uh, motivation for a villain. That said, I think that his portrayal by uh, Ben Mendelsohn had like – a lot of nuance to it. You really hate this guy for a lot of reasons, but all of it has to do with, I think his character, like the, the weak spots really come through in like his, his lack of confidence. And I, I don't know. I just, I, he's kind of a character that you love to hate because of his, his portrayal is kind of, I don't want to say like aloof, but I mean, it's just such a laugh in the audience that I was in. It's such a laugh when you see that this guy is somebody who puts his password, uh, you know, to remind himself on the inside of his <laughs> gaming chair. And like even what that password is, you know, boss man 69, like, oh, this guy is clearly just like right. such a prick. <laughs> like this is, you know, I, so I think it's I think the movie builds his character well by using all the elements that are all the tools that are available uh, all the storytelling tools to showcase what an ass this guy is are utilized in a really creative and compelling way, and the actor runs with what he's got. You know, there's very meaty scenes where he's facing off against Parzival or Wade, and I guess the question I have for you guys is whether or not you found the character Sorrento to be terrifying, because in the end... He really does wield a lot of power, and in the end, meaning the end of the film, he could still kill Wade. Like, I'm not sure quite what to make of the end reveal where he sort of – I don't know if he comes to sort of some kind of uh, – uh, if his personal conflict leads out, why he doesn't shoot Wade. But he wields real power in this movie. So were you guys satisfied with him as like a villain? Did you feel he was compelling enough or just sort of goofy and didn't, didn't really – I think he you. was goofy, but the fe the one thing that make made me completely understand that he was the villain was he was desperate. Like the one thing that you see is whenever uh, he has the first meeting with uh, Sorrento, that Sorrento has people above him that control the company and can also control his fate. So if his mission does not go well, his life is on the line. So anyone that is has that desperation is dangerous. So. 
When was that illustrated? It was during the I'm board meeting when exactly. he was assuming that they were going to win no matter what, and he was demonstrating yeah. uh, we can sell up to 80% of a person's visual space before inducing seizures, you know? Uh, and so he was at the mercy of the board uh, who didn't have the complete faith that Sorrento was going to be able to pull off this victory. Huh. You almost need, like, a Darth Vader character. Like, I, w- I will say on that front exactly, when he first met Irock, when he goes to meet Irock, I thought Irock, this dude who has, like, a, a skeleton or a skull carved out of his chest, I thought that was going to be mm-hmm. his boss. <laughs> you know, I was I was shocked. Like, gen- generally, you're on a, uh, a volcano planet, you know, and, and there's this terrifying... I fully expected that to be, and, and not just because... Um, the same actor played uh, Krennic mm-hmm. in Rogue One and literally had to answer to Darth Vader. But I absolutely was expecting there to be sort of a sinister presence higher up. But besides this, this that one scene with the board of directors who seem to have control, Ben uh, – not Ben. Sorrento operates with almost full autonomy. I mean he authorizes the raids. He authorizes the bombs that kill – Wade's aunt and uh, her boyfriend, you know, it, it's shocking kind of how much he is doing it. And, and at the very end, like he gets into a car and a, kicks a guard out and then asks the guard for his gun. He has such power with that company. I mean, here's, he's just a, a businessman. What's this guy doing, you know, being authorized to ask a, a security guard for their gun and having that security guard give it to him. So like this guy, there's so much more to this character that like isn't fully explained. You know, apparently he's combat trained or something. I, I, I don't know, but it's just he the way he he handles that uh, massive robot as well. He's clearly had some tactical combat training, I guess, is what I want to say. So he's also like so he's a soldier, essentially. What I really liked about Sorrento is the sort of inner message about how greed without work doesn't yield results. Uh, he thinks he deserves the prize, but is unwilling to do the research that might give him the advantage. He relies instead on this this sort of task force he has behind the scenes doing all the holiday research for him. And so he he has no yeah. knowledge at hand uh, without the other people in his ear that would help him to to win this search, this Easter egg hunt. Um, and... He also is an example of uh, damaged pride and how that that fuels his anger. Uh, When Finale first offers him the gun saying, do you think you can do my job better? You know, here's a gun. Go do it. And he balks at it. He he doesn't want to go kill Wade and kill the others. Uh, But later, after Parzival has survived the Cataclyst, thanks to the extra life token, uh, he climbs in the vehicle and he says, you know what? Give me that gun because I am ready at this point. Things have gone badly enough. My pride has been damaged. I was kicked in the balls just a few minutes ago. Um, I'm ready to kill this kid. And uh, you mentioned something, Eric, that I wanted to ask. What is it that stays his hand when he finally reaches Wade with the gun? Is it is it because he sees that Wade has already won and received the egg? Does that stop him or... Or does he have a sort of change of heart when seeing Wade's awe at this prize and his tears at that point, too? Like, what what is it that causes Sorrento to not shoot Wade? Do you have an idea, Seth? I, I would go with the way that he sees he's already lost. 
I feel like he just is like, well, he kind of stands there like, well, crap. I lost. There's the, my job is now failed. I I have nothing now. So I feel like he's kind of standing in not really in awe, but stand in just depression. He's done. His mission's failed. That's my take. Well, I wonder. This is something that sort of just occurred to me. But what if this whole time he was after the money and the power of it all, right? He whereas all the other gunters, um, they were after. Some of them after the money, but a lot of them after the the exploration of the pop culture and the exploration of Halliday as a person, because he was this guy, Halliday was this guy who created this space for them to be whatever and whoever they wanted to be. And so their search for the Easter egg was largely fueled by their awe of the man who created it. And... Yeah, they're on a they're right. on a spiritual hunt. They're on a they're on a, a spiritual mission to to meet right. God, basically. And so I wonder there um, at the end if Sorrento yeah. seeing Wade holding the egg with his gloves glowing gold and the tear running down his face finally gets it. Because we almost see a twitch of a smile too, right. we notice. I, I I don't know. That that's just something that maybe just now occurred to me was that it it was something he didn't understand, but now he gets it, and so he's not going to follow through with what he intended to initially. Does I, I, I for me, it's the movies uh, need to have a happy ending. Is the only thing that prevents Sorrento from shooting Wade <laughs> in the freaking face. Um, like because because he's the kind of character who you get the idea would be a bit vindictive. Um, after all he's been through in that film and all that he does, but it's just such a weird scene because to be perfectly honest, ever since he shows up at the stacks with the gun and the crowd confronts him and that woman says, we know what you've done. You better get in your car and turn back. They, they mob him, they surround him, but they don't mob him. He has a gun and all of a sudden everything, all the threats are, are moot. He is able to approach the trailer, open up the back door, and aim the gun at Wade's face. And, like, I get it, sort of. It's a gun. It's terrifying. But there are hundreds mm-hmm. of people there surrounding Sorrento. And they could have – you know what? I Somebody could have come from behind – and and anyone who's combat trained, which by the way, all of these people live their lives uh, playing like Call of Duty in the real world. So you probably have at least some semblance of how to wrap your arms around somebody, uh, somebody's head from behind to get like a gun out, like, like put them in an arm lock kind of thing to like break. The- I thought about this way too much in the scene as it was happening, but he's lit- he's literally he's not even pointing it at anybody when he's wading through these people. So because it's up in the air, right? But he's moving forward as if he's not going to shoot or something. Somebody should have just disarmed him, given a few kicks to the ribs, and that would have been it. Instead, he gets way too close for comfort. Absolutely way too close for comfort. So the movie failed really to illustrate for me why it is that he stops. I, maybe it's 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 shooting for an open-ended kind of uh, vague uh, insert-your-own-choose-your-own-adventure-choose-your-own example thing. What I'd like to believe it is is that, yes, from, from day one of serving coffee to Halliday, he never quite understood what was special about the Oasis or what was special about the invention or what was special about um, you know the, the, the art or the craft until seeing like 
that it was over and and maybe Wade's reaction caused him to finally understand some key piece of the Halliday mystery. Um, I'd like to believe that was, you know, probably what it was. But Sorrento, I think realistically, if you're going off of the rest of the film, it seemed very – the last 20 minutes of his character arc seemed very weird, uh, extremely rushed and didn't make a lot of sense. Like I, I now hate everybody else <laughs> in the stacks uh, for, for, not, for not just tackling him and I shouldn't. Like it, the movie shouldn't have – I think that's a stupid scene. Honestly, I think it's I think it's very weird. So I like his character a whole heck of a lot in the film, but the end is not too. Clear. I mean, I, I don't disagree with um, you. I, I do think that's a weakness. I do think he would have been pretty easily disarmed, maybe at the additional loss of somebody else, and maybe that's what they were trying to prevent was one or two people uh, being caught in the crossfire as they took him down. But still. But they're leading right. him to their god, like they're leading him to the man who's literally like he's he's going to win this 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 world. It is implications are sky high, and you're going to allow this guy with a gun to get anywhere near him, especially when he's from your neighborhood and your neighborhood was just bombed by this dude. Like right, yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> like not. Under yeah, I don't any disagree with you, Eric. It's just uh, that's what happened, and we got what we got. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. No, you're I'm okay. sorry you're if I'm okay. coming on too um, strong about that. We already talked a little bit about yeah. Halliday and Anorak. Um, no character-specific things I, I think I have to add, but I just want to say I like Mark Rylance a, lo- a lot. Uh, as Anorak, he actually reminds me a lot of his uh, performance as the BFG, some of the vocal mannerisms and the facial expressions uh, <laughs> in the best of ways. I, I really appreciated that, and uh, I'm excited to see more from Rylance. He's already won one Academy Award with Spielberg for Bridge of Spies. I'm excited to see what future collaborations they have together, uh, if they they are all as stellar as their three efforts together so far. So. For me, Halliday and Og and uh, the, 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 the relationship between them, um, which we've talked about before as being the heart mm-hmm. of this movie, really works. really just works for me. And, and when, um, when Wade is able to theorize in front of Og what Halliday really wanted in life and that he regretted you know, losing his best friend or his only friend, you know, things like that, Og's response. I mean, Simon Pegg's performance in this film mm-hmm. is superb in my mind and and it's it's it rivals mark rylance's um i just thought you buy it you absolutely buy that these people you know went separate ways but liked each other um you buy it as i think a friendship that was like professionally strained um and then there's that whole thing about wanting to marry his wife but you know i mean i think it uh absolutely was complicated in a way that I think reality actually is often mm-hmm. complicated like that. So I liked that that was reminiscent of something pretty much more or less that you'd find. Seth, in the, the curator wasn't a character in the book, was he? No, the curator was not a character. Okay. We did have Og did have a character in the right. book. It yeah. was not the curator, though. Yeah, he he had like special powers within the Oasis in the book, but he he was actually Og or his character, yeah. uh, his his avatar within the Oasis. It, that was maybe one small thing from the the ending. If I had to pick at it, it would it would be there's no way he was the curator twenty four seven. You know. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, because people are constantly. But it's a fun. Dude. I don't, I, yeah, you're I, right. I don't care that much. It was just like eh, I'll let that slide because yeah. he gave him the quarter. But still, uh, <laughs> anyways, 
um, we're running long, so let's move yeah. move on just a little bit. We already talked a little bit about the music. Um, mm-hmm. I just wanted to say as much as I love John Williams and was maybe slightly initially disappointed that Williams had to pass because of the post, uh, I think that Silvestri in the end was actually the, the sort of the proper choice for scoring this film, especially if Spielberg was going to take all the extra effort to not uh, reference himself. Alan Silvestri was sort of like secondary yeah. in forming the sound of the eighties with music for back to the future and who frame Roger rabbit and whatever else uh, he created then. And like you said, Eric, it's basically a companion score to the back to the future trilogy. It's the same instrumentation. Um, there's specific motifs that were from the back to the future score that reappeared here we already mentioned the percussion during the race that's borrowed from the clock tower there's uh the vehicle collisions at the end that borrowed from doc checking his watches um and then the the flute and piccolo solos that sort of represented wade at the beginning and at the end were very similar to solos from the back to the future trilogy um so I, i love that it was sylvester just because he was able to borrow so heavily from a score that i already love so much while still creating an earworm of a melody and a lot of other incidental music that I think worked really well for the film. Yeah. And I think it all goes back to just the familiarity and making you feel comfortable with the nostalgia of it. Mm -hmm. And obviously not everyone's going to connect with the music because not everyone is so heavy of a back to the future fan. So they may not recognize it, but I think it still has that sound that makes it nostalgic and makes it connect with the movie even more. So it has that power with it. Mm Mm-hmm. While we're on the subject of Back to the Future references, this was something that I saw on Twitter the other day that completely made sense to me and sort of blew my mind. Um, Ty Sheridan, well, you know, they they drive the DeLorean in reverse in this film. And originally Spielberg was going to have him check yeah. out the rearview mirror. But Ty Sheridan having experience in an actual DeLorean because uh, Ernest Cline, the author, has a DeLorean and let uh, Ty around in it. There's a flux capacitor in the way of the rearview mirror. So you can't check the rearview mirror. So it was Ty's idea to Spielberg to say, hey, we need to raise up the gullwing doors and have him looking behind him through the gullwing doors because that's the only way he'd be able to see behind him. Uh, so that's a small little detail that I thought was fantastic. And then driving around in the, the final fight sequence with, uh, with Parzival and Artemis in each of the seats with the wing doors open again, firing weapons out. Uh, it's just a small attention to detail that I really appreciated because there is a flux capacitor there. You can't use your rear mirror. Uh, now, relevance, we already talked about a couple of our big takeaways. Uh, does anybody have anything else to contribute as far as that goes? I have a couple. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, there was the smaller one about how it's not about winning or losing. It's about playing the game. Um, just the adventure of it. Ooh. And at the end, uh, Halliday thanks Parzival uh, before he leaves. He says, thank you for playing my game. Not thank you for taking the extra effort to win. It's thank you for playing. And I think that's, uh, I, I follow a couple of game developers from Bungie on Twitter. And there were one or two people who said, you know, I really appreciated the, the sort of stance that the film took at game development and gaming culture because they do just want people to play and enjoy their game. They don't want it to be, picked apart necessarily or play for the sole purpose of winning. It's about having fun. And so I think that was a, a smaller, but still important message that the film champions. I think you could probably eviscerate Halliday for that stance though, 
um, given that there's such uh, stark power dynamics going on in the world, like many people are poor, probably a higher population than uh, percentage than what we're seeing in the real world today, you know, and, and that real power is held in, you know, fewer hands. And, and if this is a, if the biggest leading competitor company is having an indentured servitude thing going on with real citizens of the world, you know, it's kind of very lofty for Halliday to be like, thanks for playing. Um, they had no choice. Like the only way they're going to get out of their crap hole town and, and save, you know, create a better living situation, not only for themselves or for the world is by divesting your company and sharing it with others, you know, multiple, multiple people. So I think there is sort of a, a, I guess a problem there if you think too much into Halliday as a character. But I think that for me, the ambiguity of who and what that version of Halliday that, that, uh, Parzival sees is is very almost godlike, and I, I I think that you know a spiritual quest. This is almost like a um, a quest for the Grail of sorts, and I, I think relevance or theme wise shows that uh, a, a well told story, um, or like a life legacy that's turned into somebody else's life legacy, and and life imitating art and all that is wrapped up into like one package. I think. Yeah, regarding the the power dynamics, uh, especially in regards to money, uh, there was something that a friend of mine, Dave Trumbor, was tweeting about today, um, where one problem that the movie does have in re- relation to the book is that the first task in the book took place on the same planet that Wade attended school. People attend school in the Oasis in the book. And so Wade was oh. poor. And didn't have many funds to go out and exploring. And so it was really important that the first task was located on the home planet, the the school planet. And uh, that it was accessible to him because he basically just had to walk there. Um, And that that was one small issue that the the movie did have is that it it didn't have those same money um, rules, money rules. Yeah, that that the book did have in some aspects at least, uh, which I think is a valid point. But just one more thing in regards to playing the game uh, in its favor, at least we see at the end, the, the holiday research department at IOI celebrates along with Parzival at the end, as he claims the last key in the prize, because as I mentioned earlier, they were all in (laughs) on this quest together because it was about holiday and it was about celebrating the creator of this thing that people loved and they were all with Parzival in that moment. So that was really cool. Yeah. It's just very ironic that the people that work for the evil corporation are celebrating just the victory. It was, mm-hmm. it's just a fun thing to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, Cause for them it's, it's almost value neutral, right? Like they're in it for getting to know the man and, and getting to finding the answer. You know, it's, it's kind of like this was their best shot to prove them uh, themselves but but it's almost like it's, it is a group support right. atmosphere sort of thing like, I don't, I don't mm-hmm. know. and just along those same lines it's about putting hard work into what you want all the the gunters did that all of holidays or the ioi's holiday research team did that and the high five did that uh but sorrento did not and so there's that contrast there uh do you guys any have any takeaways to add um, I did want to mention the character of H. We kind of skipped uh, an opportunity earlier. Um, mm-hmm. I really love the character of H. I like that she is, um, you know, uh, uh, 
Wade's best like best friend before the reveal. She cautions him, hey, you know, people aren't what they appear uh, on the internet. And, you know, like they eventually like I don't know that they would have been friends if they mm-hmm. knew each other in real life first because of the gender difference or it would have, you know, maybe Wade would have seen it as weird or something. But um, ultimately that that character I thought was really cool, um, shown to be very competent and with a big heart and, of course, is sort of what really brings the high five together in person in the film is uh, is H's connections um, to the real world. And, and H has really made something for herself uh, in – the the oasis more so than you know Parzival or Artemis necessarily had so like, being the glue that that really brings that group together I think uh, H should get uh, oh yeah and a I lot think that group. H her kind of personal conflict was her self confidence because I think that's why she kind of disguised herself in the this big massive dude uh, avatar with yeah. The, Mm-hmm. Yeah, low voice, lower voice, you know. Uh, so I think her confidence was found through the Avatar, and that's how she was able to, when she was revealed to uh, everybody, she was just like, yeah, this is me. I deal with it. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, own it. Own it, you know, like, absolutely. Like, yeah. So definitely what it did to, to get that uh, said. Um, as far as final thought, I did have one other final thought. While you're remembering that, I did want to just say I did like the rest of the final five. They didn't have the same, like, extreme growth that the other characters did. Not to say that any character had extreme growth, um, but uh, Daito yeah. and Sho were, were fun side characters while they were on screen. Um, and I liked H a lot, too. So I just wanted to say that. Oh, I got it. Um, I just absolutely loved... Uh, Every time in the Oasis when a character would flip through uh, or dial their, their weapons, like look at their inventory oh, yeah, or so purchase cool. something, that was so seamless and absolutely so reminiscent of any of the games now where you cycle through inventory. Um, that that special Those special effects in particular, shout out, it's so fluid watching these characters – because you, you can watch them scroll through, and they do it pretty quickly. They know what they're looking at, but you just—it's so quick and so smooth, just like a real video game. Like that's—that sold the video game element to me. Is just the scroll wheel of them, you know, passing through some options. So, big shout out. I know it's not much, but final thoughts. That was impressive. I was really, really <laughs> happy with that. Yeah, I mean, this is a movie that I'm really looking forward to owning on Blu-ray because Same. it means I'm going to be able to freeze frame like every single individual shot of the final sequence uh, and find every or as many references as I can. Last night when I saw, I was really hoping to find like a Harry Potter flying around because it's a Warner Brothers film. <laughs> oh, um, but unfortunately, I don't. I didn't see anything that would hint towards Harry Potter. Were there but any I Lego did see a Sonic the Hedgehog? Yeah. Oh, there was uh, Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah, there's a Sonic the Hedgehog during the final fight. We don't see him as a character. We see the the spinning blue ball. Oh my God, no! Yeah, you're kidding. Yeah, it, it, no, not at all. It was a very brief thing, but I did see it the uh, second viewing last night. Oh my! Yeah, God. there's actually a video on YouTube that I watched yesterday that kind of shows some of the references, and mm-hmm. like the video showed 138, and they're like, "Yeah, that's barely scratching the surface. That's yeah. like the tip of the iceberg." I gotta say, uh, please share that link. That'll be amazing. Uh, oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, we'll uh, put it in the show notes, and I'll, I'll text it your way here in a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
now the other takeaway is just closing off. Uh, I already mentioned, we already talked about extensively was taking care of those around you rather than focusing only on yourself mm-hmm. and uh, finding balance in your life between online personality and real life relationships that they can coexist. They are, they can both be beneficial. They can both have their negatives, but it's important that they coexist with balance or you're going to have the future that they have currently. And so hopefully Wade in the high five and Og's idea to close it two days a week is going to allow people to spend more time in the real world to recognize the problems that in that opening monologue, he said they'd been ignoring for so long Mm -hmm. and uh, make the world a better place. So yeah, it's a sort of pie in the sky kind of ending, but that's that's okay it's a fun movie and uh i'm already hoping to see it again over the next few days because i've got family in town i want to take to see and then beyond that who knows maybe another time or two in theaters while i still can we'll see yeah it's definitely a movie that you need to enjoy in a theater especially uh i think imax or you just like we've all seen is a good experience Mm -hmm. any other final thoughts or is that it i think that might be it yeah, and okay. I would just encourage everybody to read the book because it is a different experience, whether you like the book or not, just to see the differences in it. Because the book is not the happy ending that the movie portrays. There's some differences at the end. There may or may not be a main character in the high five that survives or not. Whoa! Yeah, don't want to spoil that. Yeah, yeah. in general, <laughs> I, I will I will elaborate real quickly on what I heard about the book and, and the problem that some of my close friends had with it. It was, it was a very in your face i think uh forcing people to relive one man's like deep nostalgia like it kind of maybe rubbed them the wrong way about how intricate this nostalgia was that you had to go into um you know like for instance even even just the few examples you guys have said like war games like unique atari atari games you got to play like maybe it was kind of the gotcha aspect of this is my nostalgia coming through. Like maybe almost a commentary against the author for just being so niche or something like that. Um, I'm not sure. I'm going to read the book and and figure out more about that. But I think the movie was less about shoving it down your throat, you know, and it was more Mm -hmm. about finding the human in your idol, uh, which I think is ultimately a much more uh, palatable message than necessarily what, the book might have been. I'm just guessing here. I actually didn't want to be spoiled, so I didn't ask too many hard questions about the book. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm looking forward to rereading it uh, in these next few weeks now that I've seen the film a couple times and we'll be seeing it again. So I, I, I'm having not having experienced it in a couple of years. I'm looking forward to diving back in. Yeah. And with that, that's the end of the official fifth episode of Cinescope Today. Thank you so much for joining us, Eric. Thank you guys for having me. Contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast and at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Please consider going over to iTunes, rating, reviewing, even subscribing if you are enjoying what you're hearing. Uh, email feedback and ideas to thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. And you can also use that email if you want to suggest a film that is coming out in theaters soon that you would like us to talk about. Uh, right now, I don't know what's immediately on the horizon, but I'm sure... I mean, the the theaters are about to explode over the next couple of months. And so yeah. there's going to hopefully be a lot coming our way to you. 
in regards of new releases. And then the the normal show is returning in the very near future. It's been a sort of unintentional hiatus, but it, it'll be back very soon. Um, and Eric may or may not be back very, very soon. We got to talk best <laughs> action hero if you haven't already. Oh, okay. We'll we'll see that. Uh, that sounds like an interesting choice. I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> um, Eric, how about you go ahead and tell us where people can find you online? Sure. Uh, easiest way is my Twitter. Um, it is at Spielerman, S-P-I-E-L-E-R-M-A-N on Twitter. Um, and uh, you can actually find my Harry Potter podcast over at MuggleCast, M-U-G-G-L-E-C-A-S-T. And all the links and other ways of contacting me are all on there. Yeah, 13, 13 years going strong, right? That's right. We had uh, three, 360-something episodes in the bag now, so it's super cool. Awesome. Seth, what about you? Where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Seth02. That is Seth, S-E-T-H, the letter O, and the number 2. And the best place, as always, is to find me on Twitter as well. That is Chadadada, C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. Also, Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And my other podcast, An American Workplace, where we talk about NBC's The Office episode by episode. We are very near to wrapping up season four. We also just started a Patreon page for that podcast and hoping to get a few new subscribers. You can find that uh, podcast where they can be found, podcasts can be found, and also at workplacepodcast.com. Show notes and contact information for this show can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Thank you again, Eric. It's been awesome talking to you at length about this movie. I'm glad you reached out to me. Always. I'm really, really glad. Uh, thanks for having me on, even though I hadn't read the book. I, I'm sli- slowly hating myself for not having done that. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you uh, you two were able to meet and talk as well. Yes, yeah, yeah, dude. It was uh, nice really meet nice meeting you. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Cinescope Today, Episode 5. I'm Chad Hopkins. I'm Seth O'Neill. Uh, this was Cinescope Today, and we'll be back next time with Episode 6. Have fun and celebrate movies. Mm-hmm.